0: The sermon text for today is found in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1533. Listen as I read God's word. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, "'Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid.' Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus.' They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Here ends the reading.
1: Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you here today. If I have not had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. As we come to this passage this morning, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. And as we do so, I'm going to uh, just leave about 30 seconds of silence. Silence is sometimes uncomfortable for us, as Benjamin mentioned earlier, the Sabbath and the, the busyness and the pace of life. Sometimes just sitting there in silence can feel somewhat awkward, and uh, yet it's good for us to sit in, uh, just sit in the presence of God. And so I want to invite you to take about 30 seconds of silence. I will pray, and then we will get into this passage this morning. Jesus, we are grateful that you know every single one of us. We are grateful that you know the deepest depths and the deepest recesses of our heart. We're grateful that you know every experience that we are coming out of this week. Some of us may be here with minds that are frazzled, with minds that are filled with other thoughts, with minds that are racing, And Lord, we are grateful that you know exactly where we come from this week and every week and that you, in your abundant mercy, you desire to meet us exactly where we are. We're grateful that your grace does not require that we clean ourselves up or change before we come before you, uh, but that you receive us just as we are, not to leave us the same, but to meet us where we are and to change us and transform us. And so we're grateful that you see us. We're grateful that you, in your mercy, have come near to us and have invited us to come near to you. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would be present with us and among us in a unique way this morning. We pray that as we listen to what this passage tells us about your son, Jesus, that you would help us to see him more clearly this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes, that you would illuminate our understanding, and that we would leave here seeing Jesus clearly, and that we would leave here changed people. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. We all could tell stories that make us look really bad. Some of us have more stories than maybe the average person that we could tell that would make them look really bad. But the reality is that every single one of us could tell stories in which we look kind of foolish. Uh, Maybe you have stories of uh, something that you did or something that you said that was uh, either really poorly timed or really insensitive or really unnecessarily hurtful or just something that just didn't turn out well for you, made you look really bad. Some of you would have stories of ways that you have handled or you could say maybe mishandled a certain situation. We have stories maybe of decisions that we've made, large purchases that we have made, or big life-altering decisions that we have made that make us look bad. Some of us have stories of just super embarrassing moments that we wish no one would have ever seen, and yet there was like a crowd of people there, and it was public, and it was visible, and we just look really bad, right? So we've all got stories that we could tell where we look kind of foolish and look kind of dumb. Uh, When I was in college, I decided in my first year of college, I decided to buy a brand new car. It was a really bad decision, <laughs> really bad decision. Uh, the car that I had at the time was for the most part functional. <laughs> there were some repairs that needed to be done, and I was not particularly thrilled about the amount that those repairs were going to cost. so uh, the totally you know in, in my totally rational, not impulsive way, instead of paying like this amount for some car repairs. I decided that I was going to go just purchase a brand new car for significantly more than those particular repairs would have cost, and then I drove the thing off the lot, and it immediately lost almost half its value, right? Not a good decision. Really, the only consolation I have in that story is that at the time, my brain was not fully formed, okay? So that's, that's what I hold on to, is like, you know, maybe it's not my fault, doesn't really work that way, but that's what I tell myself. It helps me sleep at night to remember that, like, this was before my brain was fully formed and functional. And uh, so, anyways, that's a story from my life that makes me look really bad. But we all have stories we could tell like that, and that is kind of just a part of life, isn't it? As we have made our way through the series in the book of Mark, we have uh, seen lots of different stories so far that show the disciples doing things that are somewhat foolish. And in fact, the book of Mark in particular, it's interesting that the book of Mark itself has a really strong emphasis on the sort of the foolishness and the failure of the disciples. So if you read the same events that are recorded in Matthew and in Mark, Mark always emphasizes the failure of the disciples. And so we've seen a couple of these stories so far, but from this moment on in the text, it sort of picks up steam And we begin to see more and more and more stories of the disciples, and they don't get it, and they don't see, and they don't hear, and they don't understand, and they don't exercise faith. And what's really hard about that is that if we are honest, we look at these stories about the disciples, and they are nothing more than a mirror for us, right? Because we look at their inability to see or hear or understand or exercise faith, and we see so much of ourselves in them. And so we see this sort of discouraging pattern of the failure of the disciples, but also one of the things that we see throughout the book of Mark, and we see it in this passage, is we see God's insistence to make himself known in spite of human failure, in spite of all the ways that we as human beings don't understand, and we mess it up, and we don't believe, and we have all these sort of lapses in judgment, lapses in faith, in spite of all of those failures, God is insistent. He is belligerent about making himself known to us. And so we get to see a picture of that this morning. So as we look at this particular passage, uh, we're going to break this up into two scenes. And the first scene is titled, Jesus retreats to pray. Very simple. That's just what we see is that Jesus retreats to pray. So immediately after feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves and some fish, as we looked at last week... Jesus sent his disciples on ahead of him in a boat to the next town. And then he dismissed the crowd and then went up on a mountainside to pray. That's the second time in the book of Mark where Jesus strategically and intentionally retreats to pray. There's only three times in the entire book it tells us about Jesus praying. And so we know that these are given to us at strategic sort of uh, fork in the road, crucial moments in Jesus's ministry. And the question is, well, why does, why does Mark tell us that Jesus went to pray in these situations? And so Jesus retreated to pray. And what I'd like to, for us to do is look at uh, the first time Jesus retreats to pray. And then this, this time in chapter six and sort of put these two side by side because I think they help us understand Uh, both of them, when we look at them together. So in chapter one, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water, the heavens part, and there is a voice from heaven that speaks over him, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And the timing of that event is really, really important. Before Jesus lifted a finger to do anything in ministry, Before he preached his first sermon, before he healed anyone, before he cast out a demon, before Jesus did anything, this word of affirmation of his divine identity was spoken over him. Meaning that this identity that the Father spoke over him was not compensation for a job well done. It was not a payment for his future ministry or his past activity. This was an affirmation of what was already true about Jesus. And so Jesus has this affirmation pronounced over him and then he goes out and he begins his public ministry and we see that he's traveling around and he's teaching that the kingdom of god has come near and he's calling people to repentance and he's healing people and he's casting out demons and we see all of this like initial like ministry success that Jesus experienced his his ministry is like immediately successful and immediately he's drawing people to himself and the people are amazed at his teaching And the people are saying, what is this? We've never seen anyone like this before. A new teaching and with authority. And so there's this buzz among the crowds. And they're saying like, man, who is this guy? And so Jesus is experiencing all of this ministry success. And it's as Jesus experiences ministry success that he retreats to pray in chapter one. And the question is, okay, well, why is this a sort of crucial fork in the road moment for Jesus's ministry? Why does he need to retreat and pray here? And I want to suggest that the reason Jesus retreated to pray was because of his ministry success. Because Jesus is in a place where the question that, that, that we have is, will he listen to the voice of the Father or will he listen to the voice of the crowd? Will he listen to the voice of the Father that has spoken this identity over him? You are my son, with you I'm well pleased. Or will he listen to the voice of the crowd that is saying, we have never seen anyone like this before? What voice will he allow to sink deep down into his heart and shape his identity. And so Jesus retreated to pray in order to resist the gravitational pull of human affirmation. He retreated to pray in order to resist the gravitational pull of human praise and the applause that he's receiving and all the wonderful things that people are saying about him. So Jesus retreated to pray in order to do that. But then we come to a second time Jesus retreats to pray in this passage. And we find, again, Jesus in another sort of crucial moment in his ministry. And again, the question is, well, what makes this such a crucial moment in Jesus' ministry? Jesus has just sent his disciples on ahead of him. And he's dismissed the crowds. And scholars and commentators just notice how forcefully Jesus tells his disciples to leave. Listen to what it says in verse 45, where it says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him. He didn't, like, politely ask them. He didn't suggest it. He didn't do any of that. He told them, get into the boat and leave. It's very forceful. There's more going on here than meets the eye. Mark doesn't record... All of the details of this event of the feeding of the 5,000 we looked at last week. But in the book of John, John includes a detail that really opens up our understanding of what it was that was happening after Jesus fed the 5,000. After Jesus fed the 5,000, in the book of John, it tells us, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountainside by himself. So what's happening Jesus fed the 5,000 and it resulted in the beginnings of a populist uprising. It began this little movement of people that were saying, okay, we have been awaiting a deliverer. We've been awaiting someone who's going to lead us in an uprising against our political enemies, the Romans, and is going to help us overthrow them so that the nation of Israel can be established like it was back in the glory days under King David and under Solomon before the wheels fell off. That's what we're hoping for. And then there's this man who's going around and he's doing miracles and he's healing people and he's casting out demons and he's announcing the kingdom of God has come near. And so this is the man that we've been waiting for. He's the one who's going to lead us in this sort of uprising against the Romans. And Jesus forced his disciples to leave so that they didn't get caught up in the misguided understanding of this sort of populist uprising that was that was happening. Jesus refused to let his disciples get sucked into that. So he forced them to leave, and then he went up on the mountain to pray. The first time Jesus prayed, the question was, will he, follow, will he listen to the voice of the Father or the voice of the crowd? And the second time Jesus prays, the question is, will he follow the plan of the Father or the plan of the crowd? The plan of the crowd is, he's going to lead an earthly political movement, He's going to lead us in victory over our political, physical enemies. But the plan of the Father was very different. The plan of the Father was that Jesus would suffer and give his life in place of ours. The plan of the Father was that Jesus, not his political enemies, would die. And that through Jesus' own death, a way would be opened for us to experience life in God's presence once again. And so there's two very different plans. Will Jesus receive the affirmation and the accolades and give in to what the crowd wants him to be? Or will Jesus follow the plan of the Father for him to suffer and to give his life and to die? And so the question, when Jesus retreats to pray, Jesus retreated to pray in order to align himself with the will of the Father. In order to align himself with the plan of the Father for him to suffer. Another way of saying it is that Jesus retreated to pray and in doing so, he resolved to accomplish our good because it was through his suffering that we would be, God's grace would come to us and we would be recipients of his mercy and his forgiveness and would be brought back into the family of God. So by aligning himself with the will of the father to crush him and to suffer, Jesus resolved, he set himself on our good. That's what's happening when Jesus retreats to pray. And so this is more than just some little like detail. It's like, oh, he retreated to pray. Historical fact, let's move on. This is so filled with meaning and it shows us Jesus's desire for our good. Jesus has resolved to accomplish our good. And that's why he retreated to pray. So scene one, Jesus retreats to pray. Scene number two, Jesus walks on water. So, look with me if you have a Bible, starting in verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like this, um, this feels really confusing. (laughs) And there's all these questions of like, Okay, how did Jesus see them like in the middle of the lake if he's on land? And why did Jesus walk out on the water to them? And why was he going to like walk past them? And like there's all these sort of bundle, <laughs> these bundle of questions that can feel somewhat uh, overwhelming and confusing. So if you've ever read this passage or something like this and felt like, total, like what in the world is happening, you're not alone. We sort of all feel that way. It's it's passages like this that require a little bit of like uh, investigation and some work, some Bible sleuthing in order to really sort of understand what's happening. So what we see happening here is that Jesus dismissed the crowds and the disciples are traveling east, okay? So here's a, a, um, oh, I didn't put the map in there. Drat, I don't have a map, sorry. Uh, Jesus was, I'll just, so this is the Sea of Galilee, okay? The disciples are here. And Jesus sent them here, and so they're traveling straight in a westwardly, eastwardly direction, right? I'm trying to do this backwards here. So they travel this direction, and as they're traveling that direction, they come into a strong wind that is coming directly against them. And so if you've ever been like in a human-powered boat, like a canoe or a kayak or a rowboat, and you find yourself like coming against a really strong wind, that's a miserable experience. Jesus' disciples have just spent, they've just come back from this ministry trip. They're exhausted. They spend all day with the crowds. It's late in the day. By the time Jesus feeds the 5,000, he sent them away, probably after dark, and they have been straining at the oars because the wind against them is so strong. And so they're in this sort of miserable experience. And then we read that Jesus, just before dawn, saw them and he walked out on the water. Now, this, this uh, little word that's translated just before dawn is a technical term that refers to a very specific time. It, re- it re- refers to the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So his disciples have, for who knows, for hours been paddling on the lake, maybe not making much progress at all. And so Jesus sees them, and he walks out to them on the lake. And what it says that Jesus <laughs> did next uh, makes Jesus sound kind of cruel, actually is how it reads. It said that Jesus was going to pass by them. Now if we take this phrase in isolation, it sounds like Jesus was like going to like walk by them and just like do his parade wave, right? And be like, hey guys, how you doing? Like, see you later. And it sounds like Jesus is just gonna like walk right past them. And that's cruel. Because they're like trying to, you know, fight against the wind for everything they've got and Jesus is just like walking on the lake, chilling like no problem at all. And so if we take this in isolation, it seems like a really cruel thing that Jesus is doing. But this is the Bible, so we can't take anything in isolation, right? (laughs) So what's happening here is that Jesus is, once again, in a different way, he is revealing his divine identity to his disciples. So there's a couple places I want to take you just very briefly. Uh, The book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8 where Job is speaking of Yahweh, he's speaking of God, and he says, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So the picture here is that Jesus is doing what only God himself is able to do. It seems bizarre to us, like, why would you choose to, like, walk on the water? Jesus is revealing to his disciples, he's doing what only Yahweh can do. But there's a more important connection, actually. And that is to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. He asked to see and to enter into and experience the very presence of God. God replies to him and says, no one can see my face and live. So no, <laughs> you cannot see my glory. No, you cannot come into my presence. But what God does is for Moses' own good, he makes a concession. He makes a uh, accommodation for Moses. And he says, hey, why don't you walk into, go into the cleft of that rock, and I will cause all of my goodness to pass by you. So what you see in the book of Exodus is God saying, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. In the book of Mark, Jesus passed by his disciples, and it's the exact same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when it says that God was going to pass by, pass in front of Moses. And so in the Old Testament, you have God himself who reveals his his identity, his name, reveals himself to Moses by passing in front of him. And then when Jesus goes to pass by his disciples, it's not saying he was going to like walk past them and just like keep going. It's saying he was intending to reveal himself to them. Again, he's doing what Yahweh does. He's doing what only God can do. He's treading on the waves of the water, and he's revealing himself as God himself who's taken on human flesh. That's what he's revealing himself to his disciples as. So Jesus is revealing himself. His disciples, again, they missed the point, they see him, and, and this is like, you can kind of understand this, right? They're, they're rowing at like 3, 4 in the morning, and they see someone walking on the water, and they're like, it's probably a ghost. I probably would not think like, hey, that's likely a person, because <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? So it, it's understandable to see them being like, hey, it's, it's like the, you know, the spirit of a dead person who's walking on the water. That kind of makes sense, a little bit. But it says that they didn't understand, They thought he was a ghost. Jesus says, guys, it's me. He got into the boat. The wind died down. And it says they were amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So when Jesus did the miracle of feeding the 5,000 people. Where there's a group of people in the wilderness. And there's a miraculous provision of bread. The disciples didn't put it together that Jesus was revealing himself as the same God who in the Old Testament provided a miraculous feast of bread for people in the wilderness. They hadn't understood it. Their hearts were hardened. They were blind to what Jesus was revealing. And so Jesus comes and once again is insisting on revealing himself to his disciples. He doesn't say, you know, you guys are so dense. Can you not see and understand anything that I'm trying to say or show you? He doesn't get frustrated with them. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't say, fine. I gave you, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. Every time I reveal my divine identity, you miss it. So like, I'm done. He doesn't do that. No, he continually over and over again, continues, insists to reveal his divine identity to his disciples and to us as well through these stories that we have recorded in our Bibles. So let's bring these two scenes together. So Jesus retreats to pray and Jesus walks on water. When we bring these two things together, uh, there are some really important things that we learn about Jesus. The first of which is this Jesus desires our good. As we see Jesus, he rejects the plan of the crowd to become an earthly political leader, to align himself politically with their hopes and dreams, and accomplish what they wanted him to accomplish. He rejects that plan. And instead, resolves to accomplish our good by aligning himself with the will of the Father. So Jesus desires our good. The Bible tells us that there's two things that are true at the same time. On the one hand, in Isaiah 53, it talks about the suffering servant, who we know to be Jesus. And it says about the suffering servant that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's plan to crush the suffering servant. And the Bible also says, Jesus willingly gave himself to follow the plan of the father. Jesus was not some unwilling participant who needed to be dragged kicking and screaming towards the cross. No, in fact, what we see is Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, which is, sort of put this in your, put this in your mind for later, that's the last time in the book of Mark Jesus retreats to pray. As he's in the garden of Gethsemane, Up until the very last moment of his ministry in life, Jesus is aligning himself with the will and the plan of the Father. Jesus does not in any way, shape, or form want to endure the suffering and the agony of the cross. And yet, until his very last moment, he went out saying, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass. But not my will be done, but yours. So yes, it was the plan of the father to crush him. And also Jesus willingly gave himself over to the plan of the father to suffer for us. And what that shows us is that Jesus desires our good. Jesus went to the cross in order to suffer and to die in our place in order to accomplish our ultimate good, which proves once and for all that Jesus desires, he wants our good. He wants what is good for us. So that's the first thing we see, is that Jesus desires our good. The second thing we see, as we look at the second scene, is that Jesus has the ability to actually accomplish our good. Right? So the first time, Jesus retreats to pray. He's aligning himself. He's resolving to set himself on our good. And then he reveals himself as God, saying, I actually have the power and the authority to accomplish your good. Right? If Jesus has the desire for our good, and yet he has no ability to accomplish it. If Jesus wants our good and yet he doesn't have the power to actually do it, what we're left with is sort of a bland form of sentimentalism. Right? Where all we're left with is saying, okay, look to Jesus and what he did, feel really inspired by that, and try harder. That's what we're left with. Look at Jesus, feel inspired, or maybe feel guilty that you're not doing it that way, and then try harder. But that's not what we're given. Jesus has set himself on our good, and Jesus has demonstrated by revealing his divine identity that he actually has the ability to accomplish our good. When Jesus suffered and died, it actually did something. What this means, that Jesus reveals himself as God, is that having risen from the dead, having demonstrated his power and his authority over sin and over death and over hell and over the evil one and over demonic spiritual forces, having demonstrated his authority over them, Jesus now has the authority to credit his victory over Satan and over death to us. He can do it because he's God himself. It means that Jesus, having ascended and being seated right now at the right hand of God the Father... In the position of authority and ownership and rulership and kingship over all things. He has the authority to distribute the gift of his spirit to us. To wash us clean. To give us new hearts and make us alive to the things of God. And to guarantee that when Jesus returns and the earth is made new, we get to share in that inheritance. So Jesus not only just desires our good, Jesus is being revealed here as God himself who actually has the ability to accomplish our good. And so this is kind of, I think, to summarize what it is that we're seeing is this. Jesus both desires our good and has the ability to accomplish it. As Jesus prays, as Jesus walks on the water, we're getting this picture that he not only desires our good, he actually has the ability to accomplish it. And again, what makes this so remarkable is that he does it in spite of the continual human failure of the disciples. Jesus desires our good in spite of our continual failures as his disciples. So what do we do with this? Let me suggest just one uh, brief application for you. From this is uh, very simply... Spend time in Psalm 103. For some of you, this is uh, a psalm you're very familiar with. For others of you, this may be your first time reading it. Great. Spend time in Psalm 103 and do these specific things. Number one, worship. The words that open Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And the rest of the psalm just recounts all of the benefits, all of the ways that God not only desires our good, but has demonstrated his good for us. And so just worship. Read the psalm and find yourself caught up in the worship of Psalm 103. And maybe even read those first two verses, praise Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. And then instead of reading on, Recount from your own life and your own story. Here's the ways that over the course of my life, I've seen God's benefits to me. Some of those might be directly uh, spiritual benefits. Some of those might just be like, God has just given me a great life. He's given me a great home. He's provided for all of my needs financially. I've not suffered much. Worship God for all of his benefits. And the second part of that is then also pray. And you can ask yourself the question, in what situations do I need to trust when I don't understand? It's good news that Jesus not only desires our good, but also has the ability to accomplish it. And sometimes, knowing that, we then look at our circumstances and, and we say, it doesn't always look like Jesus desires my good. It doesn't always look like... He's set himself to accomplish my good. And so that's the part where we have to take this before God in prayer and submit those things to him and align ourselves with what we know to be true about who God is in the person of Jesus. He is for our good. He delights to give us every good thing we need. He's demonstrated that for us in Jesus. He's already accomplished the greatest good, the greatest need that we actually have. And so we get to not only worship, but then submit all of those areas where we feel that tension. Of I know this to be true, and my experiences seem to say something different. We get to submit all of those to Jesus, and we get to worship him in response. So that's my encouragement for you this week, is to spend some time in Psalm 103. And in the weeks to come, I might uh, ask that in some of our, we've been doing some open mic times before the sermon uh, most weeks. I might ask that uh, some of you would share if you've been able to spend time in Psalm 103. What is it that God is doing inside of you as you've meditated on that Psalm? So just keep that in mind. Uh, I might be asking for that in in the next few weeks. We get to come to the communion table today and as we do each week, we get to remember and we get to celebrate the ways that God has not only verbally communicated his desire for our good, he's actually demonstrated it. By giving us the greatest gifts, by meeting us in our deepest needs and bringing healing and renewal to those needs. And we get to remember and celebrate that as we take the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. We get to be reminded with physical bread and physical juice that Jesus desires our good and submitted himself to the will of the Father to crush him. And it was because he was crushed. That's the proof that Jesus loves us and desires our good and can accomplish our good. So as we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silence uh, for confession, for reflection, time for you just to sort of meditate on what you've heard this morning. And then we will come to the communion table and celebrate Christ together. So take a few moments of silence.